Welcome to the Fertility Podcast. It's the end of the year. We're in December 2016. But if you're listening to this podcast in the future, welcome. Um, it's lovely to have you here. Now, um, we're going to be hearing from a couple of ladies in this episode talking about childlessness. So far, the Fertility Podcast has focused on having fertility treatment and people's route to parenthood not being as straightforward as they might have hoped. And I decided to branch out, and I'm going to continue to do this moving forward, covering other issues regarding you having a family. It's not just fertility treatment, but what comes with it if it doesn't work and if you do find yourself childless involuntarily. And as we're heading into Christmas, I thought it was really appropriate to just hear the viewpoint of a couple of ladies, Jodie Day and Kelly De Silva, who both do amazing work supporting men and women who have found themselves childless and both ladies will be giving you some tips on getting through the Christmas period. So I really hope this is of interest. So I'm now going to welcome Jodie Day to the podcast, who's a lady who I first learned about at Jessica Hepburn's Fertility Fest, which if you've heard this podcast before, you'll know I featured it around June in 2016, depending on when you're hearing this podcast. And I'd contacted Jodie to say I really wanted to speak to her. And now it's November 2016. You'll be hearing this hopefully in December and Jodie's here on the podcast. Welcome. How are you, Jodie? I'm very well, thank you. I'm delighted that I've managed to pin you down so quickly because you've been on my list of people to contact and then all of a sudden it's nearly the end of November and I was like, oh my goodness, I must contact you. So thank you for being available. You're very welcome. You snuck into my diary. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, I'm delighted that I did. <laughs> yes, my diary is a bit insane, actually. It's all colour-coded and sometimes when I look at it, it looks like a nosebleed. It scares the hell out of me. Is it a paper diary or an electronic one? <laughs> no, it's an electronic one, which is good because things are always moving around my life is as they say in entrepreneurial circles very fluid okay <laughs> well we're going to talk a bit about your story and the amazing work that you do with gateway women which uh, you founded there's loads of information yes. about you on your website and i'm going to put all the links on the show notes for this episode mm-hmm. because I, I, I we haven't got a huge amount of time i love the way you describe your world you tell me the point at which you realized life wasn't going to be how you'd thought it was going to be. Mm. Well, that was a pretty big moment in my life. It was actually a February morning in 2009. So, you know, I really remember the moment. I had recently broken up from my sort of second post-divorce relationship. And I realised that, you know, I was 43 and a half, 44 and a half. It's a bit vague now. But I knew that if I met someone, I'd need to know them for at least a year before I could even consider even thinking about IVF, then I'd be in my, you know, 45. And even I, with my extreme ignorance about, you know, the likelihood of IVF, even I knew that um, that was too late. And so that was the moment when I realised that my 15-year quest to become a mum, including being married for 12 years and suffering from unexplained infertility, was done. It was over. You hadn't already tried fertility treatment during your marriage? No, my marriage broke down sort of at that point when, you know, we would have gone on to that. Um, So it kind of broke down 37, 38. I thought I still had time to um, get out there, meet someone else and do IVF. I didn't really know anything about it, except it always worked. Um, And so uh, I was completely ignorant. And also, um, you know, to be fair, 
to, to be propelling myself back onto the dating world just before the age of 40, keen to meet someone, do IVF and have a baby. I mean, I was pretty cuckoo in terms of, you know, I was coming out of a 16 year relationship, you know, with the man I'd been with since I was 21. And, and our relationship broke down, sadly, because of his addiction issues, as you know, as much as my infertility. So it was all it was a pretty crazy and unhappy time. And during all of that full on part of your life, were you getting any support? Were you getting any counselling or any, was it friends you were confiding in or were you just managing it all or trying to manage it all? I mean, my friends all knew how much I wanted to have a child, but I I wasn't getting any kind of support from anyone because really that the narrative out there is it will happen. Just keep trying. You know, that's what the medical professionals told us as well. I had um, a laparoscopy when I was 33 after trying for four years and was told that there was absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, the uh, the consultant said, finest uterus I've seen all week. Wow. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you lovely young people just go away and have lots of sex. You know, and that was it. That was the, that was the advice I got, which knowing now what I know when I think about it and I've been trying for four years and there was nothing wrong with either of us amazingly no one talked about IVF no one talked about the fact that you know my eggs were aging no one suggested any further investigations nothing I was just told not to worry I mean my concern was that I'd had an abortion I was 20 so I was worried that there was some kind of internal damage and that's one of the reasons why you know the laparoscopy was really important I was told there was absolutely nothing wrong you know everything was beautiful I look back on that and it you know it can make me quite cross because I was really you know sent off on a a false error there and do you think that's part of the problem still today that people's expectations aren't managed correctly absolutely I mean I was talking to someone the other day who is in her early 40s and has recently been told by her doctor not to worry you've got loads of time you know this is someone who is you know not not in a relationship and it it was a kind of a social conversation you know it wasn't one where I was empowered to kind of discuss it but I was just so shocked that this kind of misinformation is not just coming out of the media you know it's coming from the medical profession as well. You talk about how one in five women over 45 don't have children. You talk about the percentage being on the increase. And I was really interested in the the, the different points you made about how our our mother's kind of expectations of the lives for us, the the career-driven lives, haven't quite worked out how they or we might have expected. And that pursuit of career has made things difficult. That, I assume, amongst your circumstances, led you to where you are now, founding Gateway Women. Mm. The work that you're doing now and, and the women that you're working with, you're you're putting that hope back in about how you can live your life. And, and, and I want you to talk a bit about that because it's extraordinary how, as you describe it, the landscape has changed. And, and I love the, the description you give of childlessness having having two doors. I mean, one thing I would suggest, would like to kind of say something about first is that word career, which is really interesting because I know very few women who have chosen careers or children. Most women I know have jobs, not careers. And if they didn't have jobs, they couldn't survive. Yeah. You know what I mean? There is this idea that somehow we've made this choice to imply that choice implies there was another choice we could have had. There was perhaps, you know, a partner who wanted to support us so that we didn't go to work and we could stay home and have kids and we chose career over that. It's never it's never that simple. I was invited onto a radio show in Ireland once. This is a few years ago now. And um, when an article came out about me in, in, in an Irish newspaper about my work, and he said, so, so you'll be one of those career women then. <laughs> and I was like, uh, well, no, I've been working without a break for about 30 years because, you know, I wasn't able to have children. So it kind of looks like that. But, you know, 
what what would you have had me done? Sort of stay at home on the dole and wait to get knocked up. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And you could just hear him shuffling his paper, like who put this second feminist on the show? You know, I can imagine <laughs> some researcher was going to get it in the neck because he was expecting a sob story. And that is often, you know, the role we're expected to play. That you know that that not having children, you know, has destroyed our lives. There was a point when it did feel like that for me, but the next part of the story. You know, that's not really out there in the culture yet, that it is possible to come through this, that it is possible to grieve your childlessness and grieve the life you had dreamed of for many, many years. You know, for me, it was 15 years of really putting my all into it. It was a hell of a thing to let go of. But it is possible to get past that with the support of other childless women, because unfortunately, the medical profession, the therapeutic profession and sort of general society still doesn't really quite know what to say. Usually what they do say isn't very helpful. It's not as often not intentional. You know, people mean well the things they say, particularly, you know, well, you could always adopt. You know, that's possibly the most common one. I told somebody about a conversation that I was going to be having with you and Kelly De Silva, who I'm also going to be speaking to in this podcast. That was their reaction. Why don't they adopt? As a starting point of the kind of support and advice that you give, is there a default answer to that? Well, it depends where you are in your grieving because, you know, you might just want to run away to the loo and have a cry. But I think, you know, just perhaps a little statistic about the fact that there are four and a half thousand children up for adoption in the UK and there are one and a half million childless women in their 40s and 50s. Maybe that, just that piece of data might just maybe make them think that perhaps it's not as straightforward technically as they think. But also, you know, to get into the emotional stuff, you know, if you're feeling a little bit feisty, you might want to say, well, why didn't you? You know, when people suggest that somehow it is a straight swap for having a biological child, I think, you know, we need to challenge that. But in the moment, what they are saying is actually they just want to stop your pain and they think that comment's going to do it. And I'm afraid sometimes the reason they want to stop your pain is because they're uncomfortable with it. Childless women make a lot of people uncomfortable. What what kind of stage do women come to you do you find they've given themselves a a period of time to try and come to terms with it before they've come to you or do people come as soon as the decision the the realization they've had that realization that this is how their lives are going to be it varies enormously I mean it kind of depends when they find me I mean I'm hearing a lot at the moment you know women are googling something and they're saying you know, when I looked for something five years ago, there was nothing there or three years ago, there was nothing there. And that was the case for me too, you know, sort of seven years ago when I really needed support, there was nothing. You know, now I hope that, you know, myself and, you know, women like Kelly provide something that has never been there before. Because on the whole, what's out there is support for women who are trying to conceive um, and a few websites for women who have chosen not to have children. But there was until very recently, until Keller's and my work, sort of nothing in between, and which were a very large group of the population that have been, you know, silent and silenced for a long time. And you talk about childless women being quite a threat to the status quo. Yes. Um, and, and I think that's so interesting to, to just explore now. It's it's so unfair to think that, you know, not only do you have to deal with that your life isn't going to be how you expected it, but then you've got this other kind of assumption from people. It's very strange. I mean, I talk about that a lot in my book because it's a, you know, it's a big subject and it's a really controversial one as well, because I think unless you have experienced it or someone very or you see it happening 
to someone very close to you who's experiencing it. We tend to, most people think I'm exaggerating about this. And so I would suggest to them, you know, people who say that, I'll say, well, go and have a look at something I've written for The Guardian or something like that and take a look at the comment. And they'll come back if they do that, kind of ashen-faced. And I'll say, okay, that's The Guardian. You know, <laughs> just, you know, this is the, the things that people... Uh, say and think about childless women is why don't you just adopt you're selfish for not having children um, you stupid feminist you wanted equality now look what you've got ha 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 wow. you were you were too ambitious you privileged your career you know um, um, what's wrong with you why can't you just get over it you're so self-indulgent I mean you know my kids aren't going to wipe your ass you know just like it's unbelievable. It's, it's this idea somehow that we are some kind of drain on society, but also that we are somehow defective as women and not deserving of respect as human beings as women because we don't have children. That is, you don't have to scratch very deep below the surface to, to get to these opinions. My belief is these are not individual people's opinions because these, these opinions can come from some really nice people. This is actually social conditioning um, that is unconscious, that is around gender, that is around what it means to be a woman, and that is really part of the construct of what, you know, of patriarchy, of this this idea of it being a man's world. In a man's world, um, which is the one we live in, doesn't suit a lot of men either, yeah. it's, um, is, the you know, a woman's role is to provide children and to provide partnership for a man. If a woman gets to the age of 45 and she's not, either doesn't have her own children or is helping to bring up someone else's, maybe by being a stepmother. And she's no longer kind of able to have children. You know, she is, quote unquote, past her childbearing years. There isn't really a single flattering way to describe her. Um, she really has no sort of function in, in a basic sense. I mean, all of the words, you know, career woman, lesbian, although what that's got to do with it, I don't know. You know, crazy cat lady, spinster. These are all the kind of adjectives and stereotypes of, of an older childless woman. The only ones that are vaguely complementary are aunt and godmother. And that involves being involved in someone else's children again. Mm. There are no complementary terms for an older childless woman. Now, luckily, none of these get said to our face, apart from career woman, which people don't realize how insulting that is because it implies that you made a choice because you're too ambitious equals you're not a real woman and that's why you don't have children. And that's, I, I don't know, I, all the years I've been doing this work, I haven't met a single woman who fits that description. And even the Daily Mail, who would love to find loads of women to fit that description, has only found one in all the time I've been forced to read it for, when it writes about this topic. And she, you know, bless her, didn't sound terribly well. And, you know, probably she was horribly misquoted. She said she preferred handbags to babies. Right. And I bet that's not really what she said yeah. or, you know, or it's taken out of context. So there is a lot of unconscious prejudice, which through my work and I help people to understand why they're saying these kind of things and to help them realize that maybe they don't think it. Um, because when people say, well, you know, childless women are selfish, for example, you know, I would say, have you never met a selfish parent? And they'll just kind of, you know, take a sort of double take. And in a way, in that moment, it's almost like the spell is broken and they realise that what they're saying is such nonsense. Yeah. You know, but it's a lot of work, a lot of re-education. I think that in some ways my work and the work of kind of really raising awareness around childlessness is similar to the work really that, you know, the gay and lesbian community has had to go through over the last 50 years. In a way, this is the childless liberation movement. 
Because you talk about the kind of percentage of the 1970s cohort being higher. So from the work that you've been doing, have you had any inkling of a slight shift in people's awareness and people are starting to get it a bit more? Are you feeling that the media are starting to report more accurately on how women are if they are childless? I think there has been a shift. Definitely, you know, in the five and a half years that I've been writing and speaking and talking on this, I have definitely seen a shift. And I have a hunch that the the spat that happened earlier this year in the Conservative um, leadership election between Andrea Leadsom and our now Prime Minister Theresa May, the comments that Theresa, that Andrea Leadsom made about having a more tangible stake in the future because she had children, I'm pretty sure that five years ago those comments would have gone by without notice. I don't think they would have been picked up in the same way. I don't think people would have seen the prejudice in yeah. them. Um, and and I'm I'm very very pleased about that. That you know that that was picked up, and also that a great many. You know, also that a great many parents got involved in saying how outrageous that was. Yeah. This is beginning to be understood, not really as a childless women's issue, not about divisiveness between mothers and not mothers, but actually it's starting to be seen as a diversity issue, as a form of unfairness in our culture that we are only just beginning to really notice. Now, you work with women. Your organisation is Gateway Women and you have communities and and online groups and and workshops where people can come and be in in person. With the work that you do, are you reaching the men as well through the women, do you feel? Do you get that kind of feedback? Yes, I, I do reach the men as well. I'm often asked you know, by men who email me, you know, is there, you know, is there a gateway men? And, you know, I have gone back each time and said, I feel that this is something that would need to be done by a man. Um, If you, if you want to do it, I will, you know, I'll be there for you. I'll mentor you. I'll help you get going. And, you know, that hasn't happened. I know that Kelly De Silva has set up a Facebook group for men and, you know, it, it only has a few members and it's quite quiet. I've been very curious about that. My colleague, Robin Hadley, Dr. Robin Hadley, who's one of my colleagues at AWOC, the Aging Without Children Collective, you know, he's done a PhD in this area. And it is a very different experience for men because they have been conditioned not to show their vulnerability. So for them, you know, to kind of come to a workshop or to talk online, it, it's just something that very, very, very few of them are comfortable with. In my book, I interviewed a couple of men as well. You know, I really am keen to represent their voices. And I did ask one man in Canada, you know, what he'd done, you know, to help him get through his grief because he's in a good place now. And he said he did a lot of mountain biking. Fun. Do you know what I mean? And, And I, you know, that to me just shows that, you know, I can't quite understand as a woman how... You know, I know that mountain biking wouldn't have got me through my grief. <laughs> but I really, really respect that that's what worked for him. And also supporting his wife and talking to his wife. She worked with me. She got a lot of support from me. I, what I see quite often in couples is that as the as the woman works with me in whatever way, you know, is on the Gateway Women website, reads the book, is part of the communities, as she starts to shift and starts to feel a bit better, quite often that's at the point at which her male partner starts to sometimes fall apart of it and start to feel his grief. It's as if he's been holding on. Uh, And that can be really challenging in the relationship because the, the woman might say, why couldn't you show me that this was what you were feeling before? Because they often feel quite alone in their grief because the, you know it's as if they're suffering alone so there's a very interesting dynamic in couples 
And I think as yet, you know, support for men in this area, we haven't quite found what to do. And it's not obviously just men who are part of a heterosexual couple. Neither is it is it women uh, in that sense. It's it's men and women in couples or singular heterosexual or, or gay, however we want to label it. It's so far reaching the isolation that can be felt as a result of that realisation. And I do think that lesbian childless women are just completely missing from, you know, from the space and from the way we think about things. I've had the privilege to get to know a few through Gateway Women who've actually really helped me to to wake up and notice where I wasn't noticing things because there's an idea that, and, and actually one of them told me that it was harder for her to come out as a childless woman than it was to come out as a lesbian, that she has experienced more prejudice as a childless woman than as wow. a lesbian woman. Yeah. Within the lesbian community, people often presume that lesbians don't want children um, as if somehow, because it's, it's so decided... so bizarre hearing things that, like that, isn't it? Well, it's because you're not a real woman. It's oh. this real woman thing again, yeah. that somehow you're, you, you've already kind of, you're not a real woman so therefore you wouldn't want things that real women want yeah so and also you know within the lesbian community there are many couples who have children and so you can experience the same sense of not being part of all over again because you know when you don't have children and you're grieving and maybe even afterwards you know you you don't fit in with your peer group to a great extent anymore and that is a kind of another grief and another loss that you you have to deal with is this sense of isolation Now, we are talking at the end of November. This podcast is going to go out in December. And I know on your website you have given some tips on how to enjoy a childless Christmas. So I'd just like to get some of your thoughts on it because Christmas is is a challenging time for so many people anyway. And if you're you're dealing with with this, especially if it's your first Christmas having realised, or even if it's not, you know, even if it's another Christmas that you've got to try and manage, what would you suggest some coping mechanisms I think, first of all, you know, to understand that you are grieving and to give yourself the compassion that you would give someone else who was grieving. If we have or if we had, you know, had a child and that child had died, you know, and people knew about that, perhaps they wouldn't be so shocked that maybe we wanted to sit Christmas out this year or that maybe we were only going to come for a few hours. But because the the loss of childlessness, particularly, you know, if you've never had a child at all, um, and maybe you're single as well, so people just don't really necessarily think about it, it's a hidden loss. It's a a disenfranchised grief. People don't realise it's grief. And we often don't realise we're grieving. So I say, first of all, cut yourself some slack. (laughs) <laughs> you know, if if you need to kind of duck out on things, if you need to make plans to, to kind of limit your exposure to families and children, do it. You know, give yourself permission to take care of yourself this year. It's fine. It's just one Christmas. You know, people don't think about us and what we do quite as much as we imagine. You know, most of us are quite busy thinking about ourselves. So there's always there's this idea that, you know, I can't do that because of this and that and so and so will think this and so and so will think that chances are they might not. And even if they do, they'll probably forget by March. (laughs) It's like, you know, we can take care of ourselves better in that way. If you do have to go to family functions and to work functions and things like that, becoming a member of an online community like mine or like Kelly De Silva's community and having it on your smartphone is a really great sanity saver because you can go to the loo and instead of crying, you can just go online and you'll say, you'll just never, you can just, what you, you would just never believe what my sister-in-law just said. Yeah. And you will get immediately, <laughs> you will get loads of responses from other women whose sister-in-laws have maybe just said something equally unhelpful. Idea. Yeah. And at that, and you, so you 
you go back into the event with your phone in your pocket and you know that your sisters have got your back, you don't feel so alone. That is really powerful. And I think also think very carefully about the space between Christmas and New Year. This is often a lot harder because it's often when people kind of, they hunker down with their families and they kind of disappear from view. Um, People leave the area to go off and visit kind of further families further away. That can be a really lonely time uh, if you're single and childless or if you're a couple and childless. Make plans for that time. That could be a really good time to go to a Gateway Women meetup or go to a Dovecote meetup or just, you know, just think about that. That's the bit that often gets left out. Now, your book, there's a, a new edition of your book, Living the Life Unexpected. Is that right? Yes, it came out this year with a big publisher. So it's now in bookshops and everything. So I'm, I'm really chuffed. The feedback as well from your book that you've had and where you are now as well with all the work that you do. For someone listening who has found this podcast from however they found their life to be now, um, and, and it's obviously struck a chord with them. What, what would your, I mean, you've given so much advice already, but what would you say as to how you feel now? Um, the way I feel now just blows me away. I, I can't quite believe it. I think if I had met someone, you know, in the space that I'm in seven years ago, I think I might not have believed that it was possible to get to where I'm at. I mean, that's how good it is. But I have been working with other women now for the past few years, and I'm seeing them come through, come out the other side and really are embracing the freedom that that being childless brings. I mean, you know, seven years ago, people used to say to me, oh, but you've got your freedom, you're so lucky. I used to want to punch them (laughs) because I thought, you know, I didn't choose this freedom and it doesn't feel like freedom anyway. It feels like a dark lake stretching between me and death that I have to cross one day at a time and I have no idea how I'm going to do it. Would you like an afternoon of that freedom? You know, that's what I wanted to say. But now, you know, I really treasure my freedom again, you know, and... A few years ago, I really didn't know what I was going to do with the rest of my life or how I was going to live it. Now I feel that there isn't enough of my life left to write all the books I want to write, to do all the things I want to do, to connect with all the people I want. You know, I'm actually so full of enthusiasm again. It's it's beautiful. And I'm seeing that happen with other women. So I guess the message I would give to you uh, who are listening and wondering if you will ever feel great about your life again is basically it is possible but you need to do your grief work and you will need other childless women around you to keep you company whilst you do it. Jodie Day, thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking to you on the podcast. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Natalie. So that was Jodie and I'm going to put all the links to Jodie's work. She's brilliant and her Facebook groups, her Twitter handle, everything you need to find out more about her on the show notes. And next up, you're going to hear from Kelly De Silva. And again, I'll put all Kelly's details on the show notes. And Kelly explains how she married her childhood sweetheart. She was 23 and they, they started trying for a baby pretty much straight away. Always something that I imagined having a family, probably, you know, a few children maybe. Um, I come from a large family, so it was all always there, but it was something that we just so we tried to, tried to conceive. Started when I was 24, um, and about a year after that, obviously started to realise that things weren't happening. So we were referred to the fertility clinic and had all the the regular tests and scans and. And, and things like that. And they couldn't actually find anything wrong at that point. So we were classified as unexplained infertility. We then went on to have six cycles of clomid over probably a year or so, which obviously causes absolute havoc with your body and mm-hmm. hormones. And, 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 and just explain a bit what that means. So that's hormone injections. 
Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't exactly tablets that we had the cloning. So the the clonid actually increases and the number of eggs that you ovulate each month. And then what would happen was is we'd go for a scan, they'd check that I was ovulating and that I had follicles. And then they would just say, Okay, go home and do what you need to do and see if you get pregnant. So um it didn't work for five cycles and at this point you were thinking, right, okay, what next? However, on the last cycle of COVID it did actually work. So obviously we were delighted, got to eleven weeks and then started bleeding. So I actually had a miscarriage um, at eleven weeks. I was due to go for my twelve week scan. Oh. But luckily the appointment had changed. So obviously that would have been my first um, realisation that, that had actually happened. So that was obviously very and distressing and traumatic. To, to go through that. However, because that was the first time I'd been pregnant, we felt optimistic that because it had worked once, then you know it, it would happen again. But at that time, it was when I was teaching full time, and because I was nearly 12 weeks pregnant, and it was coming to the end of term, they were looking at changing roles within the school. So they changed my role. So I went back to work in September without my baby and um, without being pregnant and without my roles. That was a really, really hard time. Had you already me. told and your workplace then that you were expecting? I told work, yeah, I told them because, yes, I had done because they were aware I was undergoing sort of like tests and things like that because at this stage it would probably be two years into it when I actually started. I know some people are referred quite quickly, but the NA, we were under the NHS for about three years before we then decided to go on to IVF. Because we're talking about 10 years ago, is that right? That you were trying? And this was, yes, yes. This is, yeah, I started 10 years ago trying to conceive, yeah. And did you feel the pressure had been re- released a bit by telling your workplace along the way, in looking back at it? Yeah, I think for me, for me, the, um, in schools, they've got a really brilliant um, fertility and IVF policy. So that was great for me. I know some people aren't so fortunate, but for me, Again, because I was having to be on stage all the time, you know, every day in front of children, it was important that that school knew, um, and my line managers were very, very supportive, that they knew what, you know, that there was other stuff going on personally, because obviously that can affect you in all different, and uh, well, every aspect of your life, really. So after we had the miscarriage, we were then, the next step was three cycles of climate. So that was what our... CCG was kind of like um, well, recommending or letting us have. So, yeah, we had three cycles of IUI, which, again, were unsuccessful. We didn't have any positive pregnancy tests with that. It was, at this point, um, we were probably four years since we'd started trying to conceive. Um, because, again, because we were still young, we were told, you're still young, but there isn't anything that we can find that there is a problem with. So it was just before Christmas that we were due to start IVF and our CCG allowed a cycle of IVF and then any frozen. So we were due to start that and get the prescription in the December and we went to see the consultant and he had the prescription there but he said that CCG had run out of money for that year and that we'd have to go on a further waiting list and at this point it was just emotionally too much for us to, well too much for me in particular to, to oh deal my. with. So, so he had like you, the bag of the bag yeah, in front of him ready there, to give you? Yeah, he was he was there waving the prescription in front of me oh saying you know my. you can't have this, it was awful so we decided to pay for the IVF ourselves we were due to start at care fertility at the Christmas actually so we decided to pay for it privately luckily we're in a position where we could afford to do that and 
know, lots of people on, but we just thought we'd just been through so much and that, you know, a further weight would just you know, have further negative impacts emotionally on on both of us, really. So we we had a cycle of IVF with care and we didn't have any, it wasn't successful. So we decided to, at that stage, I'd been reading upon different immune tract tests and genetic testing and things so we decided to pay to have all the genetic testing immune testing because that wasn't done under the NHS so we had all that done and it came back that we had or I had slightly elevated natural killer cells and slightly elevated TH helper cells so they decided to do um, have immune te- the immune drugs so the intralipids which involved having kind of like a, a feed a drip into my vein before the IVF before and after the IVF to kind of suppress my immune system and at that time it was a fairly new treatment so the side effects and things weren't known of what it was what had happened but there had been some really positive results from it so we just thought yeah we'd do that had a combination of the intralipids and steroids and it did work um, but we when we went to our early six-week scan, viability scan, there was just an empty sack. Right. So, again, we were there, and at that, at that stage, we decided to have two embryos back. The first one, we had one embryo, and I was worried about the twin pregnancy and the health implications, but we did go for the two on the second round. So we were going expecting, kind of, is it going to be one, is it going to be two? And actually, to find out it was none was... Absolutely devastating. It was very traumatic. Um, and we're just told it's kind of just one of those things. So support-wise, at that at that particular point where your expectations have changed quite drastically, first of all, you're now paying and you, you're thinking because you've gone for two, there's going to be a something. Were you then guided with some support? Care facility do offer counselling and um, at that stage and and. and even after actually it's kind of as much as you need and that's included with what care offer which was brilliant and so I you took have that up counselor yeah so i had counseling for that and i think in some ways the the two we had two embryos we had four embryos actually that were that were frozen and i was told that those embryos were actually better quality than the ones that had gone back so again although it was kind of really awful there was that sense that I've still got these frozen embryos and they're really good quality and it's kind of worked once so it might work again so there was there was still an element of hope in it Um, but again this was quite a few years down the line from when we started to conceive and in this time I've had my three younger siblings have all got children I've got seven nieces and nephews and some of those have been born when I've had cell treatment some of them got pregnant when I was having treatment and so yeah it's been quite a, it's been a really tricky 10 years well seven years when we're trying but yeah really tricky tricky time and most of that whilst we're in our early married life as well so are we talking back to back with all these different things that you've tried did you have any time in that first we'll talk about this first seven year span where you said I can't do anything for give myself because were you also working through this as well you're still at work yeah, I did, but I did, I did struggle with that, and as a result of the infertility, did suffer with anxiety and depression during the treatment as well. On the last cycle, 
I remember we'd had three cycles, so that we had two embryos put back the third cycle. That was that failed as well. And at that point, we just decided we, you know, we needed a break from all the treatment. Literally, our lives had been on hold. We'd not moved jobs. We'd not moved house. We'd not done, you know, gone on holidays or you know, you know, holidays that we really wanted to go on. Just in case we were pregnant and yeah. very much felt like there was a hold button that was on our lives which was really just stopping me feeling any joy and seeming like we really had any future or anything to look forward to because it, it is all consuming it's a really you know all consuming process and I know that along the way you studied as a an EFT practitioner, an emotional freedom technique. Now, tell me a bit about how that helped you deal with what you were going through. This Was this at this time frame that we're on or is this later? Yeah, this is during my treatment. So I was I was recommended to do um, somebody that I was doing for my acupuncture to go and have some emotional freedom technique therapy and was told it's, it's really quick and it's amazing. So I went along, never heard anything about it. I don't know how much people know, but it's using the acupressure points on the body, a bit like acupuncture without the needle. So it's using tapping those acupressure points on your face and parts of your body gently. And that releases as long as well as saying that a statement around what you're feeling and things, that releases the energy, any trapped energy, which is associated with that thought, memory, anxiety. Um, it can be phobia, it can be used to treat phobias, all different things. And I found that when I went for EFT, I couldn't, she just said, tell me a little bit about yourself. And I couldn't explain who I was or describe who I was without saying, I think you couldn't have children. I felt completely consumed by it. And I think the overall feeling around all of that was sadness. I felt a complete, you know, cloud of sadness that was hanging over me. And the EFT, what it did was it lifted that. And I was able to start talking about it without getting upset. It really just takes the prickle off that situation. And um, as I kind of, it's a bit like unpeeling an onion. So as each layer comes down and around I felt once the sadness has gone I then felt really ashamed felt really ashamed of my situation because it was something that I couldn't do felt very much like a failure and then I felt guilt so once I'd kind of got rid of that bit there was the whole guilt thing around me not being able to for my husband making a dad and the whole thing about grandparents you know having grandchildren so there was lots and lots of layers which I had to unpeel and found it very, very powerful. So I decided to train in the emotional freedom technique so I could help other people essentially. That was what that, that was around. Um, and as well as that, I'd previously studied during my teaching neuro-linguistic programming. So that's looking at the our belief, belief system and all different things, which again, are really interesting tools that I use with the people that I as well as EFT just to help people through that journey and through that tunnel because it does feel like a really dark black tunnel when you're in the middle of it and also when you're looking at deciding that actually you know there's a possibility that we might not be able to have children and what that looks like when you accept is that right to say that, that that's going to be what happens just talk me through how that then makes you feel okay so we our last cycle and we had after a year of a complete break and it was very much 
you know, this is it. We need to just get this done. <laughs> so um, we had in our mind that the, um, at the time, the NICE guidelines were three cycles of IVF. So we'd had the three cycles and we had two frozen embryos. So it was kind of a bonus. So we thought we'll have it. And then logically in our mind, if it doesn't work, we can just get on with our lives. And if it does, great. And the actual reality of that when it didn't work was quite different. I was in a very dark place for a few months. And remember it, I remember my husband going to Singapore with work and I just stayed in bed for two or three days just wallowing. But that was just what I needed to do at that time. It yeah. was very much just needed to feel and to cry and to do whatever I needed to do because obviously it's devastating. So it's a bereavement ultimately, isn't it? It is a bereavement and it is grief and it's it's a loss that people don't actually see. It's an invisible loss which is really difficult to explain, I think. So yeah, so just like I say, we've decided that enough was enough emotionally, physically, socially, on every level, uh, financially, we've just decided that we just needed to move on and start to live life again but obviously there's a whole transition period had you put everything... a figure on it sorry to interrupt had you had you said right not a figure not a figure but we did spend twenty thousand pounds right yeah we, we, we decided we'd have three cycles had the two uh frozen had the extra fourth which was due to the frozen embryos so yeah it was that was our limit really we decided beyond that that was what we were going to do because Again, the NICE guidelines said that if it's going to work, it will happen within three cycles. I now believe that they've changed that to six or seven cycles, which doesn't bear thinking about, really, because obviously the emotional and social and financial... I didn't realise that, that they changed the... I knew that they recommended three, but they actually say... Yeah, yeah, six or seven now. And I was on it with Five Live a few months ago when that came out. And obviously (laughs) talking about what that means for people, because in society there's a real pressure that people, everybody knows somebody who IVF worked for and everybody knows a medical baby story and that's great but actually when you're in it, you don't care it doesn't matter about anybody else's story because it's kind of, it's your story and it's not working Mm. so those things don't help and I think there is a pressure that, you know, you'll just keep on trying because obviously in the press often I've been very lucky in the sense that the BBC wanted to speak to somebody who hadn't got a medical baby at the end of it but generally, we tend to see in the press miracle baby stories or yeah. people that have been trying for a long time and then a baby comes along. So actually, people's and society's views on IVF is that it works. And obviously, there's lots of celebrities that have babies when they're much older. So it really gives us a false impression of IVF. And obviously, the success rates of IVF remain the same since it started. So it's more likely not to work than it will work. So where you found yourself not being able to have the family actually spurred you on to not just kind of wallow as you described it. Last year, you set up the Dovecote, which is an organisation to to enable people to face the voluntary childlessness that you and your husband are. And you're doing remarkable work. I know that there's all online as well as face-to-face support and you work with Fertility Network UK and with CARE. So... Let's just have a little um, look at the amazing work that you're doing. And I, I know you're really busy because you're all over Twitter and I, and I see you on the telly and I hear you on the radio. So just explain about the Dovecote organisation and, and how, if people are listening and they found themselves 
looking for that next bit of support you know what what you can help them with yeah so obviously when I when I was going through my fertility journey um, I was quite young going through it and it's quite often not the we don't hear of people in their late 20s early 30s going through this it's people who are a little bit older so I felt that I wanted to create something where that support wasn't available um, when I came to the end of my journey so a place where people had come to the end of their fertility journey and then you know a safe space and sanctuary really for people that they could then be with people that understand and get it essentially so I set up the dubcoat.org which supports people um, and enables people to deal with involuntary childlessness, so men and women. Um, like you say, I've got an online growing community as well as being face-to-face support um, and Skype calls and looking at how we can develop that next year with physical support hub meetings so across the um, across the world, really, because it is a growing. I've got people interested all over the. It's a global community. So it's a global really, issue, isn't it? Um, I try and keep it. Yeah, it's a global issue, and it's connected. I mean, I've got my youngest member is 26. We've got premature ovarian failure, and my eldest um, member that I know of is 66. So there's a huge range of people who have reached involuntary childlessness from a range of different journeys. You know, we've got from womb cancer, people have had to have hysterectomies because of endometriosis and other issues, medical issues, people who issue to infertility, other people who they've not they've not met the right partner or they they're a lot, they were older when they started trying to conceive. So, you know, the journey to childlessness is kind of it really ranges, but essentially people in the community feel like it's a place where despite our journeys it's somewhere which is safe and try and keep it positive yes you know there are bad days and times in the year which are really difficult and triggering for people but I try and keep it positive in the sense that every week I'll have a 52 weeks of inspiration topical theme got monthly free online support meetings um which is through skype so november's was self-compassion and that proved really popular so i put on some extra sessions of that which again gives people the tools and techniques of how really for the self-compassion it was about being our own best friends because quite often when we're in the fertility journey and even dealing with childlessness we say things that aren't that kind and helpful to ourselves because of our journeys and the scripts that we've got in our heads. Giving people the tools and the techniques and just, again, just opening that conversation around would you would you speak to your best friend or somebody who's going through this like you are to yourself? And obviously, inevitably, it's no, we wouldn't. Mm. So it's just getting people to be a bit more aware and, and, and using the self-care and and things really just to build themselves and, and and help them in their own journey because you talked about how you have men as well um and i know you have workshops that people can come in in person i mean is it common that couples will come or do you find that it splits couples yeah the way that the way that it's developed 
generally it seems that women are obviously more open to talking online and things but there has been an increase in demand from the men who want to talk about it as well so um, arranging free meetup sessions across the world I've got people who've set up Dovecote meetup in their general area and we are looking to have more couple based opportunities as well because I know that speaking to men and as, as especially through the Fertility Awareness Week, opening up that conversation and what it means to them is has been really eye-opening in the sense that it really does, infertility, impact on their whole masculinity and what it means to be a man. And for me, certainly, I felt that the fertility in five, having those five words that sum up fertility and, and put it out there to the men as well, and one of them was, life goes on without me. And I think giving men and having that conversation, we need to find more opportunities because we don't need the same things as women. You know, men and women are very different. So it's finding the things that are going to engage men. I think it was really refreshing to see on the BBC the conversation with the two men before my interview around childlessness and, and, and the impact of that at work and you know the baby on board stickers and people going on maternity leave and just not being able to engage in that conversation around school plays and and all those sorts of things yeah I remember my parents have got very good friends who haven't had kids and it, it was always kind of they haven't got kids no questions asked and I think that was how it was with maybe our parents generation and I think what happens now is people ask more questions they feel that they have a right to say well why why haven't you got kids it's even harder without the it is yes definitely I agree with that completely and I think from the people on my community both men and women that's the one of the most difficult conversations or questions that people actually ask them and people's responses to that vary depending on who they're talking to and what stage they're at and if for me I was very much oh to begin with it was like oh no not yet and kind of brushed it off whereas now I'm a lot more open and I'll say unfortunately not and depending on who it is you know tell my story or, or whatever but again it, a lack of education in, in a lot of it in the sense that it's just one of these conversations that people you know have or I, I sometimes get because we're not we don't have we're not having IVF anymore oh so you've given up then mm. and it's like well no I've <laughs> not just given up mm. if you really knew what we'd been through it's not about giving up it's not about why don't you just adopt because again that's a whole different conversation and thought process and, and things to go through so yeah everybody's journeys are, are very unique and different and we all deal with it in a different way being able to it being childlessness being accepted by people and it not being a taboo thing and people not being excluded because that's the whole thing obviously as you get older there's more of your friends have children um and there are many people out there who don't have children but it feels like for most of those they have they're silenced and they don't they they don't say they do feel ashamed and what's been really beautiful really with the fertility awareness campaign and since I went on the BBC is the fact that the response has been overwhelming. I've had people sharing their stories, contacting me, sharing the BBC interview and the fertility awareness campaign, you know, the, the quotes and the fertility in five. Yeah. And they've felt because I've spoken out and because others are starting to speak out as well, including Jodie and Jodie's work's been amazing and um, and all of that, it's really given it's empowering people to say 
this is who I am and it's okay. I don't have children and it's okay. Whereas before, like I say, I felt very ashamed around not being able to have children. So I think that that does feel like this, there is a shift going on. Good. Um, and also, if we can if we can reach out by whichever which way, this podcast being one of them, and somebody hears that there is an organisation like yours, the Doveco, because this podcast is going out at the start of December, and December is inevitably an impossibly challenging time if you haven't found yourself with the family that you'd always dreamed of whether you're still on your route to parenthood or you've had to accept that it's not going to happen how you'd expect so with December approaching what would be and I'm sure it's not a short answer but in a in a small nutshell a roasted chestnut nutshell what what would you advise for people if they are just kind of anxious about how they're going to deal with it especially if it's their first Christmas where they've got to accept that this is what life's going to be like I think that whole thing around self-compassion and being kind to ourselves and being our own best friends and if there's certain family events that actually are going to cause you more distress giving yourself permission not to do those things or having your own traditions so maybe it's going away just before Christmas or doing something just for two of you or if if you've got a partner and doing something that's a bit different because obviously Christmas is centred around children which is obviously very difficult so having your own traditions and routine being honest with your partner in terms of how you're feeling about it and if there is a particular family gathering or aunt whoever who you know is going to you know get in there with difficult questions asking if they can almost buffer that in a way or if there's a way round of you know doing something say completely different and I think it's just about looking after yourself because I think Christmas is you know there's lots of times of the year which are really tricky but Christmas seems to be one of the ones that really can be very triggering for people and yeah it's yeah if you can just be kind and kind of own your own feelings and know that it's okay and I think reaching out and connecting with other people who are in in a similar situation whether that's um, the Facility Network UK if you're still going through that or one of the childless um, not by choice um, routes as well and um, there's the, the Dovecote Mortal Life is Gateway Women as well um, all of those provide a sanctuary and a safe place really where we get it and you're not alone and I think you know if you can attend some of the, the meetups that are out there and available that's obviously it's, it's been really really powerful and that peer-to-peer support is amazing Because how long Kelly is it now that, that you and your husband decided uh, that you weren't going to continue with any treatment and you were going to about three years so this is probably the, the one of the yeah last year we, we went away just before Christmas and did our own thing and um, actually went to Sandringham for the Royals Christmas morning and then came back home and had the family Christmas dinner with our family so we had kind of that time on our own just before Christmas but then we had Christmas afternoon and Boxing Day with our family which meant that there was a bit more of a you know a different mix because you don't want to also isolate yourself from your family even if you need to initially and it's like you say it's completely acceptable to yeah and I think it gets easier as well it becomes um less painful definitely 
And for me, I used to absolutely love Christmas. And that, again, with the whole fertility journey and, and dealing with childlessness initially, that whole enjoyment and the joy of that just kind of went away. I just thought, well, what's the point? But starting to really, I mean, this year as well, last year and this year, really starting to get excited about it again. And, um, you know, it's just about making making it special, but in a different way. And I think that's the thing, you know, life will never be as we imagined it to be without children, but it can be different and it can still be happy and meaningful. And joyful. And joyful, yeah, and joyful, definitely. Well, Kelly, it's been lovely hearing all that you're doing and how you're feeling. And I'll put all details to the Dovecoats uh, organisation on the show notes for this episode. And I'll get from you that BBC link and also all your Twitter and everything because you're really prominent on Twitter. And thank you for your time. It's been it's been really interesting hearing hearing your thoughts and everything. And, and happy Christmas. Happy Kelly. lovely Christmas. Thank you. And you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So thank you, Kelly. And thank you, Jodie. So um, I'm going to put all the details of today's show at thefertilitypodcast.com, Dove, okay? So just have a look and um, you'll be able to follow Jodie and Kelly's work. And then I'm going to have a follow-up episode on childlessness with Robin Hadley, who you might remember Jodie Day mentioned. And Robin has done a PhD. He's researched into the effects of childlessness in men. I thought it would be really interesting to get Robin's viewpoint as well. So that episode will be coming out in another week, and I really hope it's of interest. Do let me know whether you've enjoyed this episode, if it's been helpful. If you want to email me, natalie at thefertilitypodcast.com or tweet me at fertilitypoddy. And do subscribe to my email list, which you can do on the show notes page, which is again for you, thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash dove. Thank you again for listening. And until the next time, 